Fish bites at its finest. Do you like the Miami Marlins, but like really, really like the Marlins, everything about them? Then you are in the right place. This is Eli Sussman. I'm in charge of a little website you may have heard of called fishstripes.com. We're all across social media at fishstripes on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And we are all over the Marlins heading into this 2020 MLB season. The whole team has been together in camp in Jupiter, Florida for about two weeks now, and we're coming off the first full week of spring training games in the Grapefruit League, but the team has one of the best records in the whole league. Winning streak recently came to an end after a perfect 6-0 start, and uh, we're not going to talk about the Marlins as much on this episode than as we usually do. That's because we're dedicating this to the National League East preview, making sure to make you aware of everything else that is happening in this division as you're probably coming to terms with the Marlins are the least experienced talented team at the major league level among the five teams in the National League East which is why we're going to be sure to uh, really break down what's going on with the Braves the Mets the Phillies the reigning world champion Washington Nationals and how the Marlins stack up to those guys interesting connections and of course trying to pick apart the flaws that all those teams have and what it means when they play against the Marlins this upcoming season 19 games apiece against those teams overall 76 games of your schedules against your own division nearly half the schedule so it is critical to be aware of what the team is going up against and that's an important lens for when we're evaluating how the season is going for the Marlins third year under new ownership as part of this rebuild and uh, yeah who you're sharing a division with is a very large part of who you are as a team yourself which is why we're just setting aside the majority of this episode to breaking down the division before getting into all that let's do my Marlins game of the week from this past Wednesday, a comeback win for the Marlins over the St. Louis Cardinals, 8-7 to on Wednesday, February 26th. Game was started on the mound by Pablo Lopez, his first appearance of spring training, and he was not quite on his game, and ending in two-thirds, four hits allowed, two runs, one run earned, one strikeout. He threw 36 pitches. And actually, one of the runs that ended up scoring off of him, the reason why he didn't complete the two innings that he was scheduled to do is because he was covering first base on what could have been, what probably should have been, a ending-ending double play to get him out of the jam. And he simply wasn't able to hold on to the ball. He was charged with a fielding error uh, trying to catch the ball, and the ball got by him. And uh, anyway, the Cardinals were able to take that lead against him in that second inning uh, before he got kicked out of it. And... At one point, the Marlins actually trailed 7-4 to four as well, heading into the eighth inning. And at that point, um, you, you kind of just concede that maybe it's not your day. At the time, the Marlins were undefeated. So it looks like maybe finally uh, the randomness of exhibition games had finally caught up to them. Uh, but no, they, they rallied on late, and they ended up winning for what was at the time their fifth straight win to start the spring. Uh, the bigger story on the mound, though, besides Pablo, and you guys know how uh, much of an advocate I am of Pablo, how high I am on him for the 2020 season, 
pitching in relief of him in this game were two of the very best prospects in the Marlins organization, right-hander Edward Cabrera, left-hander Braxton Garrett. So some notes on them. Edward being a consensus top 100 MLB prospect heading into 2020. And in the opinion of a couple evaluators, they actually see him as the best prospect in the Marlins organization at this time after a huge breakout season last year, mostly with Jupiter. It saw him get called up to Jacksonville at double A in the middle of the year. And he showed some amazing raw stuff in this appearance. He ended up going two innings. And uh, the first inning, uh, a little bit jacked up, as people said, that were on site for it. Uh, two innings in total, one hit allowed, one earned run, a wild pitch, two strikeouts. And thankfully, we had StatCast set up for this game to look at the quality of his pitches. His fastball was sitting 96 to 98 miles per hour. He maxed out at 99 in his spring training game, in his first tune-up for the season hitting 99 and <laughs> he also threw a handful of change-ups but if you've been following Edward pretty closely whether it's by following our earning their stripes podcast or our other prospect coverage on the site you know about his change-up which uh, definitely improved a lot in 2019 but what's unique about it is that's a very firm change-up the velocity on that pitch if he's throwing his fastball in the high 90s, that changeup is regularly 90, 91, 92, 93 miles per hour. And in this first go-around, StatCast was classifying it as a two-seamer. They weren't recognizing that it was a changeup because of how hard he throws and how it, it doesn't necessarily have the big drop that you typically expect from a changeup. Uh, of course, he got great results against it in the minors and in this game as well. It, it seemed to be pretty effective for him. That was so exciting to see a great first step for him. Hopefully, he'll appear in a couple other games, although he's not really in consideration for an opening day spot. Uh, the question just being whether he'll go to Jacksonville or to AAA Wichita to start the season. Then there's Braxton Garrett, who was on with me a couple months ago for an interview. I really enjoyed speaking to him about his preparation for the season. This now being his second full season since Tommy John surgery, and um, in his it's his hope that he's going to end up with a workload that is far surpassing anything he's ever done before. Now that he had a chance last year to really get his feet wet in Jupiter, he was with Edward Cabrera before Cabrera got promoted. And then at the end of last year, actually, Garrett also followed him up to Jacksonville. In this game, fastball sitting 90 to 93 miles per hour. That's him. He, he's not quite, the, the arm talent is different. His big key for him as a pitcher moving forward is the repeatability of his delivery and just being able to be consistent and keep the ball in the ballpark, which was actually somewhat of an issue for him in Jupiter last year. His signature pitch, though, even more than the fastball, is that beautiful curveball of his that he only threw a few times in this outing uh, because, frankly, there are other priorities for him to develop as an all-around pitcher. He he has said um, his changeup is not quite exactly where Edward Cabrera's is, so that was a priority for him, and he threw a few of those in his outing. The overall stats from this game, very similar to Cabrera's. He went two innings, two hits, one earned run, two strikeouts, no walks, and both of them threw, let's see, Cabrera threw 32 pitches, Garrett threw 26. 
and Garrett actually gets credited with the win because he was on the mound in the seventh and the eighth inning. That's when the Marlins finally got over the hump and completed their comeback against the Cardinals. They scored eight runs in this game. They got three homers from Miguel Rojas. There's a ball that's popped up in the left field. The left fielder goes back to the track, and that ball is curving. It's a home run, folks. The wind took it out of here. He golfed that ball, that be it Miguel Rojas, in the left field, and he just continued to drift and went right over the 330 mark. From Lewin Diaz, from Chad Wallach. I mentioned before that we had StatCast set up for this game, and that was fortunate for Lewin because it had him tracked on his home run at 109 miles per hour on his homer, which uh, according to some of the data we had from last season, that's about tops of where he was during the minor league season in 2019. He had a great season last year, 27 home runs between the Twins organization and then once he was traded over to the Marlins. And this was really him at his very best. He scalded a ball, pull side down the right field line, and that, at the time, brought the Marlins within two. After that, Wallach followed up with his own clutch three-run game-winning home run, 105 miles per hour exit velocity off the bat. It was just at this time a year ago that Wallach was opening some eyes in Marlins camp. His reputation had been as this defensive first catcher. Uh, frankly, there were some suspicions of nepotism that were benefiting him, considering that Tim Wallach, his father, the longtime major leaguer, he, he was the Marlins bench coach up until this past year. There were some doubts as to whether Wallach would still be in the organization entering this spring training because of all the precious roster spots that the Marlins need to be careful with and all the additions we knew the Marlins were going to make over the offseason. Wallach survived. He's uh, the third catcher on the depth chart right now. And uh, the critical thing for him last year, uh, what made him a, seem like a viable major leaguer for the first time, is that the bat looked like it could have some impact. Of course, that's never going to be the priority for you as a catcher. You're going to want to focus on your defense, on your camaraderie with the pitchers on the staff, and all that. It's still important to be able to do something when you get up to the plate. At the very beginning of his major league career, there were concerns about him being able to put balls in play, and that's probably going to be a weakness for him um, going forward for the foreseeable future. Is The strikeout rate is probably going to be higher than you like. Of course, the Marlins are going to put up with it uh, if there's enough oomph in your bat and enough power to make it worthwhile. That's certainly the case with someone like Jorge Alfaro, who strikes out even more than Wallach does. And this is not the first time that he's hit the ball hard. That was his first home run so far of the spring training. But this looks very similar to him entering 2019. You'll remember in 2019 that he did make that opening day roster as the backup catcher. That's not going to happen this year unless something goes wrong with Francisco Cervelli or uh, or with Alfaro, because Alfaro is out of the lineup right now with oblique tightness. Um, nothing else to report on that right now. They're They're optimistic that he'll be just fine after sitting out for a few days but uh, we're gonna have more information on that this coming week if there is an entry he's in line to make the opening day roster again and it's it's just very encouraging to have him because the rest of the depth in the marlins organization at catcher is very iffy when you get behind alfaro and cervelli they're counting on on wallach being relevant and if he continues to hit like he has in this very small sample, the rest of spring training, then um, even if this team coming into opening day, they're going to have some very tough decisions because they'll probably want to create some a couple more 40-man roster openings to 
fit some non-roster invitees into the situation that they have. And Wallach is making the case that he should stick around and is very important depth for this organization to have. Final note from the Marlins spring training win on Wednesday, left-hander Alex Vessia recorded the save. He was a late-round draft pick in 2018, and all he's done since reaching pro ball is dominate at every level, from the rookie levels, made it all the way to double-A Jacksonville late last summer, then participated in the Arizona Fall League. He's a streak dating back about eight full months where he's not allowed a run pitching in a professional game. That includes high A, double A, the fall league, and now major league spring training. He he was really smooth in this particular save. He had made one previous appearance that was uh, more dramatic that he was able to get out of. This one, uh, no funny business. He had just a one-run lead to protect, and he was able to do so. Uh, for him to make the opening day roster would be a very big stretch, but considering his track record and all the question marks the Marlins have in their bullpen, it seems almost inevitable that he'll be in the majors at some point this upcoming year. Pretty average fastball velocity for Vesia by Major League reliever standards, but it's that high spin rate on that pitch and his ability to locate it that makes it really effective, uh, how he complements it with his slider and his changeup. He's, he's got the whole package to be really successful right away. Hopefully he gets a few other late-ending opportunities here in spring training. And like I said, we're really excited to see him during this upcoming season. It's a nice find to get, especially when you've looked at some of the recent Marlins draft classes under the previous ownership. There were some whiffs. There were some entire years where the Marlins totally whiffed on the drafts, didn't get anybody that contributed really consistently for them in the majors. It's important to find these hidden gems in the later rounds and and every single level that Vesia has been at. He's shown that he has the skills and the game plan to get guys out, and he's showing it again now facing major league competition. As promised, the rest of this episode will be a National League East division preview, going roster by roster through the teams that the Marlins will be competing against most frequently here in 2020. Beginning with the reigning division champs, the Atlanta Braves, who last year totally dominated the Marlins, a 15-4 and record against them in head-to-head matchups, and even that kind of understates how lopsided these games were, the big divide between talent and execution. Looking at their projected lineup, this is going by Roster Resource, which is on Fangraphs, an amazing tool that I like to use to prepare for other teams. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. looking like he's going to be their everyday leadoff hitter after spending a lot of last year in that spot, challenging for a 40-40 season last year with home runs and stolen bases, and doing particularly well against the Marlins. He's a nightmare. He's under a guaranteed deal through 2026 with team options until 2028. You got to get used to him for this entire decade, entering his age 22 season. Also returning Ozzy Albies and Freddie Freeman. Uh, those guys also coming off huge years at the top of the Braves lineup and under long term contracts. Then there's an old friend, Marcel Ozuna, in the cleanup spot. Just signed a one-year deal. His uh, free agency, for the first time, did not go quite as planned. Turned down some multi-year offers uh, when he didn't quite get the total guarantee he was looking for. So he ended up with just a pillow contract to go to the Braves. And he's back in the division for the first time since 2017, when the Marlins 
after which traded him away to the Cardinals. So he's entering his age 29 season. Since he left, his bat has certainly regressed a little bit, Where, but he's still clearly an above-average option to have in the middle of your lineup. Continues to hit the ball extremely hard. And uh, the only question with him is going to be defensively because his shoulder has been a big problem area for him with the Cardinals. He simply can't throw the ball with much velocity anymore. Uh, so he'll have to adapt other ways to make himself useful. Uh, rounding out the projected lineup, Travis Darno as their catcher. Ender Inciarte will play a lot of center field. Probably not an everyday player, though. Dansby Swanson, the former number one overall draft pick, who's had some ups and downs in the major leagues. Um, but he's relatively unchallenged to be their starting shortstop this year finally trying to put it all together and uh, Johan Camargo expected to play a lot of third base for them uh, potentially later in the season you'll see Austin Riley who of course had a lot of hype coming up through the system but didn't quite translate that to the majors uh, the big subtraction for the Braves was Josh Donaldson who had an amazing year as their everyday third baseman last year but simply got more money from the Twins than the Braves were able to offer him themselves uh, some interesting guys off the bench, including old friend Denny Echeverria. Uh, Nick Markakis will presumably be starting quite a lot in their outfield, shifting things around on days when Inciarte is out. They'll put in Markakis, and they'll shift Acuna to center field. Uh, of course, uh, in addition to Riley, they have a lot of intriguing prospects in the pipeline that are ready to break through. Uh, someone like Christian Pache may be up later this year if a need arises in the outfield. Drew Waters is highly regarded as a minor league hitter, and they have a bunch of interesting arms from Bryce Wilson to um, uh, Tuki Toussaint is still sticking around somewhere. You may see him factor into the bullpen. So we're, we're going to get into the pitching staff right now. Uh, that was... Uh, not quite as much of a strength for the Braves last year as their lineup was. They still got Mike Soroka, who was quietly an amazing rookie campaign for them. He's going to be entering his age 23 season, it looks like. twenty. I think technically his age 22 season this year, turning 23 before the season is ever is over. Uh, Max Fried, Mike Fultonevich, Sean Newcomb, and as currently projected, uh, Felix Hernandez the amazing pitcher for many years with the Mar with the Mariners who certainly has fallen off quite a bit since his stuff has dwindled in his 30s he's about to turn 34 years old this year um roster resources giving him a shot to sneak onto the roster in the number five spot I know his first appearance of the spring went very well I think he's about to make his second appearance um so that'd be a lot of fun to have him in the division and also because uh, I'm pretty optimistic that he's over the hill just from watching him with the Mariners uh, so I'm kind of rooting for him to make the team and quietly confident that if he does even the the Marlins will have some decent days against him but uh, starting pitching depth is still somewhat of a question for them they're going to be leaning on a lot of these prospects that have very minimal minimal major league experience to step up when a need arises in the bullpen they still have Mark Melanson under contract very highly paid and uh, but overall a very solid reliever who has a long track record they made a big investment over the offseason at the very beginning of the offseason the very first big free agent deal that any team signed was with will smith he got a three-year deal after coming off a great year last year with the giants shane green luke jackson darren o'day who i think missed most of last year with injury uh, their bullpen is fine. It's it's not. It's again going to be somewhat of a question mark. There was a stretch last year where uh, the team had all these totally anonymous dudes in their bullpen, 
Luke Jackson was a, a big bright spot for them last year before they made some of their midseason upgrades. So they're going to be relying on the fact that they can, yeah, simply get the most out of these uh, relatively unheralded relievers or ones without much upside. Just looking at this bullpen, it doesn't quite have as much velocity as most around the game do this year. Uh, so once again, that will be something that the Marlins will hope to exploit is uh, some of the question marks in their bullpen. Uh, before moving on to the next team, I should note that Peter O'Brien is also a non-roster invitee to spring training. It's still unclear whether he's going to even make it into the season on the team. He's certainly not going to be on the major league team to open the year. Definitely would be in AAA if he does stick around at all. And he's coming off an amazing winter with Toros del Este in the Dominican Winter League. He won the Most Valuable Player Award in the Dominican Winter League. That's something we tracked on the site quite a bit. He seemed to be really enjoying himself. Um, his major league track record, of course, is, is very spotty. The only positive being that September 2018 performance with the Marlins. Uh, this is going to be one of his last shots, I would think, to actually get significant major league playing time because uh, the potential is there, but simply hasn't been able to put his bat on the ball or add value in other ways aside from hitting for power. But the power is there based on what he just showed this past winter. He's an easy guy to root for. Uh, it'd be better, I think, if he ended up with a team, not the Braves. I don't want to be put, in, be put in a position to root against him during games, but just a depth piece to keep your eye on. Next up, the New York Mets, who also did very well against the Marlins last year, going 13-6 and in those matchups. Their projected lineup includes Brandon Nimmo, who had some injuries last year, but extremely strong on base skills for that guy who was about to turn 27. Jeff McNeil, who one of the amazing bat-to-ball guys in baseball, who also hit for a lot of power as the year went on last season. Just a really great offensive player who provides him a lot of defensive versatility. At the current moment, expected to play a lot of third base, but he's shown the ability to go to second in even the corner outfield spots. Uh, Pete Alonso, coming off his Rookie of the Year campaign, uh, set an all-time record for home runs by a rookie. Robinson Cano, hoping to do better than he did in his first year in a Mets uniform. J.D. Davis had a nice breakout for the Mets. Uh, doesn't give you much defensively, but amazing quality of contact. He just hammers the ball, especially against left-handed pitching. Michael Conforto, Wilson Ramos, and Ahmed Rosario, who did really well as an all-around player as the year went on last year. Uh, there were some question marks initially whether he would still be able to stick at shortstop because of all the fundamental mistakes he was making and some questions about his range, but he made some interesting adjustments during the season, a former top, top prospect who's only 24 years old. Uh, also on their bench, they have a uh, old friend Jake Marisnik, who was, of course, once a highly tied prospect with the Marlins at the beginning of last decade, got traded away to the Astros and was a world champion with them. So it's an interesting dynamic having both Davis and Marisnik, who are on that 2017 Houston Astros team that has been firmly implicated for cheating with that sign-stealing scandal. Uh, Marisnik was on the roster for most of that year. And he had, I believe, his best offensive year as a major leaguer on that team. Not so, not all that shocking in hindsight. Uh, I mean, I'm putting it all together, just generally speaking, he's not coveted for his offensive impact anyway. They see him more as a fourth outfielder who has the versatility to play all three outfield spots. 
so he's already in line to make the roster and you'll be seeing quite a bit of him this coming year because defense defense continues to be a very big question for this Mets team for whatever reason they they really like to prioritize older veteran players and just naturally you're you're not going to get quite as much um defensive value out of those guys once they reach a certain point of their career Jed Lowry is still sticking around he barely played at all last year in the first year of a 20 million dollar free agent deal and heading into camp this year it's still very mysterious about his health something wrong with his legs that he that's not really getting elaborated on uh so at this moment being projected for the opening day roster i I think the expectation for the mets is that he's not going to play very much anything they get from him would be a bonus and the same thing applies for yoannis cespedes who is the highest paid player on the Mets roster, finally entering the final year of his contract, uh, coming off a year where he didn't play at all. He was recovering from injuries to his heels and also that ankle in- incident that he had on his ranch uh, in Florida. He has reported to spring training. Uh, I don't think he's played in a Grapefruit League game yet, but he's expected to at some point. Uh, a big question for the opening day roster and the Marlins, the Mets were able to actually finagle themselves out of a lot of the guaranteed money in his deal. And they reformatted it in a way that he actually has to earn it by getting playing time incentives with the team during the season. Uh, so I guess he'll be motivated to try to extend his career considering this is the last year under his current contract. Uh, of course has amazing power when he's able to play, but he's also coming off these severe leg injuries, 34 years old, and history says when you just take time away from the game at that age, um, when you come back, you're not going to be able to contribute much in the field at all, and whether you're able to even get your full timing back at the plate is um, a big question mark. So someone that the Mets are not going to be relying on, but certainly is an X factor in their season to try to boost that offense on the pitching side, the Mets have a lot of potential there. Jacob deGrom, the two-time reigning National League Cy Young Award winner, followed by Noah Syndergaard, Marcus Stroman, Stephen Matz, and then some competition for the number five spot between Rick Porcello, who's a former Cy Young Award winner, a very sketchy Cy Young winner when he got it with the Red Sox, and also Michael Waka, who had a lot of hype when he was originally in the Cardinals rotation a few years ago. He's certainly fallen on some tough times. His raw stuff has declined a little bit and and simply isn't missing as many bats as originally hoped as a pitcher. But that's a really great group to go with. Uh, The only problem is there's not really any depth behind them because the Mets have mortgaged a lot of their future in order to make some of these short-term improvements, including Stroman. They traded away uh, a couple prospects to the Blue Jays in order to get Stroman. And uh, same with Edwin Diaz, who is in their bullpen and lining up to be their closer once again, uh, coming off the worst year of his career uh, after previously in 2018, having one of the all-time great relief pitcher seasons that anybody could ever hope for. He still throws gas. He still has that amazing slider. Lots of swings and misses. Uh, The question is going to be managing the quality of contact and keeping the ball in the yard. Gave up a ton of home runs, especially in high leverage situations. And so he was extremely unpopular among Mets fans in his first year with the team. Also in their pen, they made what I think is a very good addition, uh, high risk, high reward, signing Dellen Batances 
who for years has been amazing uh, as a setup guy with the New York Yankees, uh, an all-star about four different times, who has been pretty durable in the past, but just this past year, that was wiped out by a couple injuries, including finishing the year with an Achilles injury that could make him somewhat questionable for opening day. 32 years old, a two-pitch guy just like Diaz, but with a, a slower breaking ball that just is such a big contrast with his high heater that he throws in the mid to high 90s. So those two have the, as much potential as pretty much any pairing of relievers in baseball this year. Uh, behind them on the depth chart, Seth Lugo, Justin Wilson, Jerry's Familia, who is their highest paid reliever coming off a really ugly year um, in the first year of his free agent contract returning to the Mets, who he originally had his first run of success with. Uh, Brad Brock is also in here. He had He's had a pretty nice track record, uh, primarily with the Baltimore Orioles. It's, it's a talented team, and it's one that even though people love to tease the Mets, and I think many of us think that they made the wrong decision uh, in terms of their leadership by going all in on these next couple years, well, on 2019 and 2020, uh, once they hired their GM, uh, Brody Van Wagenen, it looks like a good opportunity to rebuild for the team. But they more, they used whatever prospect depth they had and were willing to spend a little bit more money than they have historically in order to put this team together. They've really hit on some of these controllable position players, especially McNeil and Pete Alonzo. So the whole team that's coming together is going to be a really competitive one. Is it going to be the best team in this division? Uh, probably not. Uh, I think it's reasonable to expect the Braves to have that more well-rounded roster and, of course, have these great uh, reinforcements uh, standing and waiting at AAA. The Mets do not have that kind of depth. If they stay healthy, though, um, they could be really good. And one prominent source that does believe in the potential of this Mets team is Baseball Prospectus and their Pocota Projection Systems. It has them as uh, the highest projected win total in the National League East this year at 88 wins. That, of course, assumes pretty good health. And if the Mets have gone this far with mortgaging their future and, and trading away their depth in order to win now, then presumably they'll be able to make some of those choices during the season as well to plug some holes as they come up in the organization. Yeah, if they do that, this could be the best Mets season in a while. And that would make all this risk worth it. But it, if you know the Mets' recent history, a lot of the best laid plans blow up in their face. Uh, always a team that's easy to laugh at, even when the Marlins themselves aren't in the mix. The Mets always find a way to put themselves in the news for the wrong reasons. Now we go to the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, projected lineup looks pretty similar to last year. Gene Segura, JT Real Muto, Bryce Harper, Reese Hoskins, Jay Bruce, new addition D.D. Gregorius, and then Scott Kingery and Adam Hazley. Uh, Gregorius was a guy that I really liked as a free agent target for the Marlins coming into this year. Uh, I figured that he'd be open to a one-year deal after um, he had Tommy John surgery and had a shaky 2019 season trying to recover from that. So I've, I thought it was a nice, relatively low-risk high upside pick considering how popular he is as a personality and how well-rounded his game is when he is fully healthy. Uh, ultimately, I, I guess you can 
say in hindsight that he probably wouldn't have taken the same kind of one-year pillow contract from the from the Marlins that he would have with the Phillies, and the Marlins were able to swing that trade for Jonathan Villar, who was a similar type of player that adds even more versatility. So uh, when all the dust settled, I think the Marlins chose right with the decision they made, but it is going to be tough to watch Didi in the division someone that is pretty well suited for the Phillies ballpark in that it's relatively friendly to left-handed hitters. And even though Gregorius um, overall doesn't have great batted ball quality to him, he's able to pull the ball with a lot of authority and get good home run power off of that. He was with the Yankees and that should carry over pretty well to the Phillies. Uh, Real Muto was uh, even better than the Phillies could have hoped for last year. Uh, frankly, it was his best year of his career, and he was seeking to get paid big time off of that. They went all the way to an arbitration hearing. This is his final year before earning free agent eligibility, and most players, of course, during their arbitration years, they'll, they'll find a way to reach a one-year settlement with their teams to avoid a contentious hearing. Uh, he wasn't willing to avoid that. He wanted to get paid. And as he said in some public comments, he was very determined to raise the entire level, the set a new bar for how catchers were being compensated across the industry. He, coming off such a well-rounded season, one that even his team would have a hard time denying was uh, amazing and established him as the best player at the position. Uh, the Phillies still ended up winning their arbitration case against him. He'll be earning just $10 million this coming year, which is such a bargain for someone in the prime of their career, 29 years old, coming off the kind of year that he had. And uh, we'll see how that affects their long-term negotiations because Real Muto, uh, he's always seemed like the guy that at the right price, he'd be willing to forego free agency to sign an extension. The Marlins, as we've mentioned, did not really make him a very reasonable offer before trading him. And um, that was just a decision that they made. And ultimately, they were able to get a really good package in return from the Phillies. So it's, I guess it, it could work out well for everybody how this has gone. Of course, the Phillies are not coming off a good year at the major league level. They were the only team in this division that struggled against the Marlins. They just went 9-10 against the Marlins last year, the only team that lost most of their games against them. And as, as a whole, they ended up as a 500 team. It was the second straight year of this window of contention where they showed promise at some points early in the year and weren't able to follow through on that. They were playing out the string when it came to the end of the year. They ended up firing Gabe Kapler and bringing in Joe Girardi. Uh, so so who knows if, if having someone like Girardi, who was a longtime catcher himself, whether that makes Real Muto more open to signing an extension. Uh, any estimate that you make on this would put Real Muto in north of $100 million in guarantees if he's going to forego free agency just because he would be the best catcher to reach free agency in a handful of years. Maybe not quite on the same level that Joe Maurer was when he signed his deal with the Twins. Eight years, $160-something million, $184 million. He won't quite be in that territory. But for a team that already has huge commitments to Bryce Harper, to uh, still paying Jake Arrieta a lot of money. We're going to get to him in a moment and a handful of other places. The Phillies are certainly spending their money, but don't have a whole lot to show for it. And uh, fans are going to get pretty antsy considering all the years of losing that preceded the, the spending spree the last couple. Uh, some other notables on the position player side, they have Neil Walker, old friend, spent last year with the Marlins 
eh, was more or less what the Marlins signed up for, but that's not really saying much. Uh, as he's a non-roster invitee, he wasn't even able to get a major league deal from the Phillies coming off the season that he had, including missing some time with injury. But a switch hitter, good veteran, great track record at the major league level, and has now shown more versatility defensively than he had early in his career. So as currently projected by roster resource, they think he's going to get onto the team somehow off the bench. Uh, other than that, their position player depth is pretty weak. Uh, the big drop-off in quality behind the plate from Real Muto to Andrew Knapp, it pretty much assures that Real Muto will be starting five days a week, if not six days a week, and he's been up to the task to doing that historically. Uh, in the pipeline, they have a couple good prospects, not great depth with some of the aggressive moves they've made. Al- Alec Baum, Baum, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, but he's a good power-hitting third baseman they have in the pipeline. Uh, and aside from that, really relying more on their pitching depth than the position player side. Uh, as things currently stand out, a lot of these guys uh, have the potential to be in the lineup every day. Uh, sort of unlike the Marlins, this is a team that could have a very steady lineup every single day uh, throughout most of the year. The Phillies pitching staff has a few major question marks. Uh, Aaron Nola at the top is coming off a, a solid 2019 season, but it kind of paled in comparison to his breakout in 2018 when he emerged as their ace. The team spent big money on Zach Wheeler, five years, $118 million. There's this perception of him as a guy that hasn't fully put it all together yet, but you look up and he's already entering his age 30 season, so it's certainly a risk for the team to take. But he has great raw stuff on his own and has, at times, with the Mets the past couple of years, looked like a potential top-of-the-rotation talent. Uh, Jake Arrieta is still there. He battled through some elbow trouble last year. Just doesn't miss bats the same way that he did during his prime years with the Cubs. Uh, but he's been a veteran that is open to working well with younger pitchers. A guy that has a lot of good advice to give about the mentality you want to have as a starter and the training that he puts in to stay on top of his game. Uh, There are some benefits that he brings to the table, even if he's not quite getting all the outs himself, as you would want from someone on such a big deal with his reputation. Uh, Vince Velasquez, uh, Zach Eflin, they're in the mix as well. Some of those guys have had some great outings against the Marlins last year. And their bullpen was a disaster in 2019. So they're hoping that good health is going to lead to some bounce back there. Hector Norris, currently projected as their closer. Uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez, he tore up his elbow after he, he briefly emerged as one of the hot relievers in all of baseball a couple of years ago, has since torn up his elbow. It seems, I guess, that he's going to be healthy now to have an impact for them uh, from the beginning of the season. Uh, they re-signed Tommy Hunter, who's coming off an injury as well. Nick Pavetta should, showed some nasty stuff as a starting pitching prospect, but he's now being shuffled into the bullpen. And uh, there are some other guys in here that, that, frankly, just do not have a lot of name recognition around the league. Uh, so I would imagine that the Phillies are going to be looking during the season. If they do find themselves in the mix, they're going to be a team that is really fixated on adding some relief depth to their equation. Uh, a big X factor that I didn't mention already was Andrew McCutcheon, the former National League MVP. He was great for the Phillies at the start of last year, but then tore up his ACL. 
Uh, he wasn't in their current roster projection because he's going to begin the year on the disabled list, on the injured list. Uh, the Phillies have already made that clear because it's going to be close to a full year of him coming back from that knee injury. And for a guy that is later in his career, still effective, but later in his career, they want to be cautious to get the most out of him. He's still under contract for an additional year beyond 2020. Uh, when he was right, he was an amazing leadoff guy for the Phillies, and you could really see their offense struggle without him. He was kind of the key to keep things going, working deep counts, and getting on base. So they'll be relying on him again. And, of course, they're going to be relying on Bryce Harper to take another step forward. Last year, he put up amazing numbers in clutch situations. His overall numbers, though, were uh, kind of meh, more or less in line with his whole career, but uh, like his career averages, but not necessarily close to what he was at the top of his game when he was winning an MVP with the Nationals. 1-0 pitch to Harper, swung on, drilled, in the air, deep out towards right center field, back goes Duvall at the track, at the wall, and it is off the top of the wall. Three runs are going to score as Rio Muto is on the heels of Torres. Harper pulls into second with a bases clearing double, and the Phils take a 3-2 lead. They just have these other questions like Bruce and Gregorius. Those are streaky players as well. Uh, this season could go into a lot of different directions for the Phillies depending on what happens with a lot of these guys that you see the upside, you see the track record, but um, not necessarily the most consistent bunch. So we'll see what the upgrade at the manager spot does from Gabe Kapler to Joe Girardi. And um, if some of these star players are at their best, then the Phillies can compete with anybody. But there's enormous pressure on them because their farm system overall is not in great shape. And there's only so much wiggle room for them financially, especially if they are in a position to extend Real Muto long term. That's going to be another big contract on their books that is going to deplete their other alternatives to plug roster holes. We finish up with the Washington Nationals coming off the franchise's first ever World Series championship last year. They bulldozed through the Marlins going 15-4. and four. Uh, Some of the old friends from with Marlins ties that are on their roster, Anibal Sanchez, who had some big moments for them in the postseason, and Starlin Castro, who reached free agency this past year, uh, did a little bit better than I feared because, remember, last year he got off to that terrible, terrible start offensively, uh, certainly turned it on over the final three months of the season and he even showed the versatility to play third base. So he was able to get a two-year guaranteed deal from the Nationals. It's still going to be a big adjustment for him because he took a lot of pride in playing every single day. Uh, that's what he did last year. He played all 162 games for the Marlins, and that's not going to be the case for the Nationals this year because they took an interesting approach to addressing their infield. Their big subtraction was Anthony Rendon, who was their best all-around player in 2019, but signed in free agency with the Angels. So to replace him at third base, it's going to be a, a combination of Castro, of Esdrubal Cabrera, of Howie Kendrick, and of Carter Keboom. Currently from roster resource, they see Keboom getting the majority of at-bats at third base, with Castro seeing more time at second base. They also signed Eric Thames, to be their platoon at first base, uh, playing a lot against right-handed pitching. Other notables in the Nationals lineup include Juan Soto, who is 
may I remind you, only 21 years old. Man, if that guy gets better, the rest of the world is is screwed. And traditionally, when a player is this good so early in their career, um, they go on to having a Hall of Fame caliber career. So uh, get used to him in the division, uh, terrorizing Marlins pitching and all other pitching that exists. Uh, also keep your eye on Victor Robles, who quietly had a very good year in their outfield, especially defensively and on the bases. Uh, but he's got some solid potential at the plate as well. He's a guy that came up as a prospect, uh, was generally regarded more highly than Soto was a couple of years ago. Someone who has the makings of all five tools as a player, currently projected as their leadoff hitter, and he's only going to be entering his age 23 season. Trey Turner is still there. Adam Eden is, is still there. Uh, the void left by Rendon is going to be difficult to fill, uh, aside from Soto. There's not really any one of these guys that, that you fully trust to be a an all-star caliber hitter. They're trying to add value in other aspects of their game. So I think it's safe to say that the Nationals won't score quite as many runs this year as they did last year. They'll have to rely uh, plenty on their defense and on their pitching staff. So we'll go to that staff as well, where you have a couple of very recognizable names at the top. Steven Strasburg, who re-signed with the Nats on a huge seven-year deal. And then Max Scherzer on his own seven-year contract that has worked out extremely well for the Nats. But he missed plenty of time last year, uh, primarily with back issues. And if those linger into this upcoming year, then that will certainly test the depth that the Nats have. Patrick Corbin in the middle of his contract. Anibal Sanchez in the second year of his deal at age 36. And uh, Joe Ross is currently slotted into the number five spot for the Nats. Uh, not a whole lot of prospect depth for this team. Um, one of the pitchers that they did have in the pipeline was right-hander Sterling Sharp, and they didn't leave him protected on the 40-man roster, which allowed the Marlins to get him in the Rule 5 draft, so further taking away from a division rival. Uh, in the bullpen, they got Daniel Hudson, Sean Doolittle, Will Harris, who pitched very well quietly for the Houston Astros the last handful of years. Uh, Tanner Rainey has amazing pure stuff and his results last year were kind of hit or miss but um certainly has the stuff to be a difference maker for them uh hunter strickland who is now in the journeyman phase of his career but not all that long ago he was a great option in the later innings for the giants uh, the nats seemingly every year are never able to get this bullpen alignment quite right there was that segment uh, a couple months into the 2019 season that the bullpen almost derailed their entire season and uh, pushed them on the brink of firing their manager and considering making some trades like uh, the bullpen is a big reason why they've underperformed especially in the playoffs with the exception of 2019 uh, they're trying to get it right this time uh, of course they have those older options currently slotted to line up in the later innings so that experience matters uh, but a couple injuries, and uh, they'll, of course, be scrambling again to try to figure it out. And now, um, even though Rendon is gone by re-signing Strasburg, still having Scherzer um, and Corbin, they have some big contracts on the books, and we'll see how much flexibility they have to add during this upcoming season. Uh, last year, heading into 2019, I thought they were the best team in the division, and it took them a while to show that. They they finally had to prove it in the nick of time during the postseason. Uh, once again, if I was to pick the best team in this division, I think this time I'd lean towards the Braves, uh, just because 
of all the depth that they have ready to impact them, at, especially at the AAA level, and of course, some of the players that they have that will just continue to get better after stepping up last year. Uh, it's going to be a great division uh, yet again. I mean, that's what we said coming into last year. Um, it might be even deeper this time in 2020. And uh, it's a reason why it's difficult for me to get a great feel on how many games the Marlins themselves are going to win. Because we look at them, we've been talking about for months and months now, how they're an improved team over what they were in 2019. Uh, the, the question is how much that is going to be reflected in the wins and losses. Because when you're playing 76 combined games against the Braves and the Mets and the Phillies and the Nationals, all those teams under significant pressure to win this year, uh, all of them with uh, the flexibility you would think to add during the year if the needs present itself, that uh, there's just not going to be very many easy wins against these teams. The silver lining to this, I suppose, is that every time you go to Marlins Park in 2020 for an NL East matchup, there's going to be amazing talent on the other side. It's a great measuring stick for this young Marlins team as they try to figure out how close they are to building that sustainable contender. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Three more weeks of spring training, and we're going to get through it together here on Fish Bites and, of course, on fishstripes.com. This is Eli Sussman. Go fish. Go fish.